coming up on Economics Explored? So MMT is, is far worse than, you know, suggesting that all oh, things are slow and thus we need to use it. These people are, you know, pushing this thing as a kind of permanent model, um, or at least until CPI looks so scary that they get, you know, at least a revolt from markets or worse, a revolt from voters. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 89 on inflation. My guest this episode, making his eighth appearance on the show, is Darren Brady-Nelson. Darren is someone who is much more concerned about the potential for future inflation than many other economists who either aren't concerned at all or don't see inflation as a concern for at least a couple of years yet. So we're speaking in May of 2021. Of course, forecasting the economy is very difficult and there's definitely scope for reasonable people to have different views on the future path of the economy. I'll be very interested in your thoughts regarding what Darren has to say, so please send through any questions comments or suggestions to contact at economicsexplored.com and I'll address them in a future episode. Okay, so let's get on to my conversation with Darren. I hope you enjoy it. Darren, good to have you back on the program. Thank you, thank you. And um, I'm a, um, also a former Treasury official, but a un- unprofessional economist nowadays. Right. Oh, yes, yes. You work. You, you used to work in the New South Wales Treasury. You've also. I did. Yeah. Uh, currently, you're at uh, Liberty Works. You're chief economist at an Australian think tank, and you're also a policy advisor to Heartland Institute. If that's right. Yeah, that's correct. Good one. Good one. Darren, I thought it'd be good to have you back on the program. So you've this is your eighth appearance, if I'm counting correctly, and I thought it'd be good to chat about inflation because it's uh, very topical at the moment. So we're recording this on the 22nd of May in Australia. So that's a Saturday, it's a Saturday morning here. And Darren, you're in uh, Milwaukee in Wisconsin, USA, and it's uh, Friday the 21st. So we'll just, I'll just point that out just in case. uh, I mean, often data can change. We can get new data by the time this comes out, but I'll try and publish it uh, reasonably soon. Okay, you think Darren. Our inflation worries might be over with by next week, so you better get it out, eh? All right. <laughs> <laughs> right, I will see. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a good point. I think this is uh, one of those issues uh, that will continue for uh, months to come. Okay, so Darren, you've recently authored a an article, "The Inflation Iceberg Beneath the Economic Waves of CPI." I'll just read the intro from the article and then I'll ask you about the article. On May 12th, there was finally some of that much talked about unity in the country. So this is the US. However, unity, like everything else in life, has to be judged from a perspective of good or bad. This unity came from both left and right-leaning news outlets. It was good in that they all agreed that something bad just happened. It was also bad in that something bad just happened. That bad something was the 4.2% jump in inflation in April as measured by the Consumer Price Index, CPI, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS. 
this can clearly be seen in well you just say you point to a chart that shows the uh the increase in uh, cpi okay so darren this increase in cpi to what extent was that just a recovery from the COVID recession so some of the commentators on the left on the progressive news sites they pointed out well nothing to worry about here because we had a fall in cpi during the COVID recession and then this is just cpi recovering to where it would otherwise be what what do you think about that argument yeah well i think if you if you uh, look at um not just obviously the uh, what typically happens is where, look, for instance, I got this chart that I referred to uh, in, in my article, and I essentially refer to four different charts, two on CPI and, and two on uh, money supply, which we'll talk about um, in uh, soonish, I imagine. Uh, so the first chart I referred to is just the 12 months. And uh, even with that, you know, that the argument that um, the, you're, you're referring to doesn't hold water. Because, uh, you know, CPI was kind of going up with some of the, the stimulus that was going on under the Trump administration, but then it was starting to come back down. And then what changed is a change of, of uh, administrations. And pretty much from the beginning of that change of administration, so, you know, you'd have to be looking at February, because obviously, um, although, you know, certainly the new administration, like, you know, um, the previous administration, you know, got to work quickly you know, from January 20th onwards. But, you know, obviously there's a lag and things starting to show up in statistics. So, you know, with the new sort of Treasury officials, uh, even though the Federal Reserve is nominally independent, you know, these central banks are never completely independent from, from the political administrations. You know, the, I call them semi-independent, really. Um, and so you can see CPI starts going up, for instance, you know, the, the rate of CPI, I should say, as opposed to you know, the straight index, you know, you know, starts out with sort of 1.4, you know, was kind of flatlining around 1.4 or less. And then come February, goes up a little bit, 1.7, goes up a fair bit more, 2.6 um, in March. And then, you know, the, the obviously the headline figure of 4.2 in April. So even just looking, you know, the 12 month basis, you know, that narrative that, that some sort of progressive commentators have isn't correct. Now, obviously, if you look at, you know, in my article, I, I show some more context and I show, you know, CPI as far back as I can get it, um, which is, you know, essentially for the 1960s onwards. Um, and even looking at the past sort of, you know, four years, eight years, you can see um, things are ticking up a little bit, even by, <laughs> and, it, and frankly, it hasn't looked good under many administrations, you know, going back to uh, uh, the late 1970s. Uh, or at least, sort of, you know, well, yeah, probably the late 1970s. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's a very long answer to to your question. Um, there is something going on that's not really just COVID recovery or something seasonal. Righto. So you mentioned the Federal Reserve before, and you you argued, well, in a way, it's an it is a an arm of the U.S. government, and it's certainly been involved in the COVID policy response in terms of lending money to businesses like creating new money lending that out it's also been doing some quantitative easing hasn't it with the the bond purchases so the the federal reserve has been massively increasing the money supply is this one of the things you're concerned about 
Yeah. So that's, that's essentially, you know, the crux of my article is like um, linking the, the measure of prices of CPI. And that's only one measure of prices. And, you know, look, it, it's okay. It, it certainly has, you know, a, a reasonable amount of flaws to it. Um, but, you know, the, my article isn't about you know, the flaws of CPI. It's just going, look, you know, here's, here's this measure of prices. Um, prices going up isn't really inflation per se. It's the consequence of inflation. So inflation is inflating the money supply. Um, and then, and, you know, and then, I mean, I don't go into great detail, but that includes credit, debt, you know, debt and credit, which immediately get turned into money. Otherwise, it's just no use, obviously. Um, and to go back a little bit with your um, sort of you were kind of alluding to, um, you know, one key thing that shows you how semi-independent the Fed kind of is, is, um, and I mean, it doesn't guarantee this, obviously, but obviously Janet Yellen was the head of the Fed for quite some time. Um, and then now she's the head of Treasury. And, you know, the Fed and Treasury, regardless of inter- administration, interact quite heavily, obviously. Uh, um, obviously, particularly in the era of quantitative easing, but they always have interacted a fair bit, you know, throughout history, but they've really interacted a lot in quantitative easing because it's obviously, um, you know, given, as you mentioned, sort of, you know, it's heavily tied up with sort of government bonds and, and whatnot, and then getting out sort of the stimulus as well more recently. Yeah. Under both, under both administrations, I've seen Trump and even, you know, I would say even more so it looks like there's a lot more sort of, if you like, money printing, if you, um, to use a kind of a sort of catch-all term. Um, and that's what stuck out was, you know, uh, there's three measures that the U.S. use of money supply. It's M0, M1, and M2. They, you know, they obviously have technical definitions. And, um, but the one, just looking at the statistic, was the M1 that kind of stood out the most, uh, at least for this year. Um, in last year, as um, you kindly pointed out to me, uh, you know, there was a statistical revision of M1 in particular last year. So obviously that impacts things, um, not just last year, but flows through a bit to this year. But I think even in that context, M1 kind of stood out this year. Okay, I'll put some, yeah, I could put some charts in the show notes because I think you do raise an important point. There's been this huge increase in money supply, I mean, massive that we haven't seen in, in uh, decades, really. Even by QE standards, yeah. which, you know, QE is a massive, a previously massive increase in money supply. And yet we have something new, um, which I go on later to my, in my article to connect it to this new idea, well, you know, sort of new idea of modern monetary theory or MMT. Okay, yes, definitely want to come to uh, MMT. I just want to <laughs> ask quickly about the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. I think that's a very good point you make about the the fact that Yellen was previously in the Fed and now she's head of Treasury. So there must be a, a lot of movement between the Fed and the Treasury. I, hadn't, I know there's a bit of movement between the Treasury and Wall Street, uh, but now also it seems between the Fed. All three, they, they kind of <laughs> circulate, yeah. Oh, right, okay. And it's only certain bits of Wall Street. It's the, the really big banks, you know, like um, – um, as the joke goes around the U.S., government sacks instead of Goldman sacks. <laughs> yeah. So you've spent time in D.C. I, I haven't. Uh, so a Treasury and the Fed are they ne- are they near each other in the center of D.C. There? Um. Yeah, they're not very far away from each other. Yeah, they're pretty close. Um, you could easily walk. You know, like a little stroll from one to the other. Yeah. 
Treasury's not far from the White House, is it? I'm just trying to picture it in my mind. They've, uh, just from the the maps I've seen, so it's actually closer to the EPA, but it's not very far from the Treasury, though. Right. Yeah, Treasury, like Treasury, sorry, Treasury's right next door to the White House. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But the Fed's, you know, if not walking distance, it's like two two um, metro stops away. Train. Yeah. So it's it close. Yeah. And, and obviously, um, you know, the, the executives, you know, have access to chauffeured cars and all that sort of stuff, so it's pretty easy to get back and forth. Nice, nice. Okay, so well, you know, a camera's similar, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, except the uh, oh, I guess the ministers have access to chauffeured cars. I guess, yeah. The so the senior executive in the treasury and or in the in the federal government agencies in the U.S. because they're appointed by tre- the president are effectively ministers, aren't they? Yes. Anyway, that was a bit of a they're almost like ministerial staff. Yeah. yeah. Right. That was yeah. A, that was a bit of a tangent uh, of mine. Uh, just just fascinated by this. <laughs> Yeah, the linkages between all of these uh, different organisations. Okay, back to uh, MMT. Now, this Biden stimulus is pretty big, isn't it? And this is what is causing some concerns in the markets. Is that right, Darren? Well, look, you know, it's hard to obviously summarise, you know, what the markets like or don't like because, you know, any sort of government intervention in the market um, just by its definition creates winners and losers. So, you know, there's plenty of people in the markets who are winners who are quite happy with it. You know, it just really depends, um, you know, um, obviously who's getting it, how much it is and how quick, you know, how quickly it gets out there. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty hard to summarize that, you know, the markets, you know, you can say that they're all concerned, um, but certainly sort of the, the more conservative or libertarian oriented institutions have concerns. Um, whereas obviously the the progressive, more socialist oriented ones do not. Okay, just trying to think about what happened with the with the bond market. I'll have a I might put a chart of the, that in the show notes because we have seen some increase in yields of the uh, of Treasury bonds over twenty twenty one, and that is reflecting in part concerns about future inflation. So inflation expectations are, are starting to get priced into into bonds, but I mean interest rates are still extremely low. So the 10-year treasury yield uh, based on this chart I'm looking at it's between 1 and a half and 1 and 3 quarter percent it looks like. So I'll put that chart in the the show notes. So I guess well, look, regardless of what happens, that, you know, that's an indicator obviously and, and you know obviously it's a, it's a fairly common and and sometimes it's a useful one sometimes you know, it leads you astray. So obviously if that was, was a, a solid indicator that you could always rely on to predict the future, we would never have booms and busts. We certainly wouldn't have any busts and people wouldn't be surprised by them. Um, but they are, they always are. In fact, there's, you know, there's only a handful of people who will claim afterwards that they predicted it. Oh, look, yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, obviously look at that sort of stuff, but, you know, just, you don't even need to look at the statistics when you're, when you're, sorry, beyond, you know, you know, the first statistic you really need to look at is the money supply related statistics, obviously with the appropriate caveats of what exactly are they defining it, putting in there and what's, you know, what's in and what's out. And obviously last year, what did they change? What did they put in? What they put in out? But overall, that's your leading indicator really for inflation. Cause you know, it's always been the leading indicator that, you know, even, um, you know, sort of economists like Milton Friedman would point out, you know, like, you know, him and um, I forgot the name of the other person who did that major study, 
of, of sort of money, you know, for over the course of like two or more centuries, always found that every single time that any sort of sustained and significant inflation comes around, it's always to do with, um, you know, manipulation of the money supply. More yeah. increasingly, to be accurate. So you're referring, of course, to the classic 1963 study for the NBER, A Monetary History of the United States, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Absolute classic. I guess one of the points that, I mean, Friedman's points are that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So you can't have high, excessive and continued inflation without an accompanying expansion of the money supply, which is essentially facilitating that inflation. But he also makes the point that in the short run, the linkage is may not be that strong like in the long run there's a strong impact but in the short run there i mean there are quite a variety of things that can affect the level of prices and so what the mmts will argue so the modern monetary theory people who are in art who basically say don't worry about the deficit don't worry about the debt if you're this if you're a monetary sovereign so to speak you can simply print your own money and you can you can pay back the uh, the bondholders when you need to, or you may not even have to worry about that. The Federal Reserve should just give the tre- the Treasury a, a huge overdraft. Don't worry about selling bonds or whatever. So <laughs> uh, I think that's the yeah. I, I've I've struggled to exactly figure out exactly what they're saying, but that but basically they're saying yeah, don't worry about the debt. You just print whatever money you like. I mean, their argument is that the economy is there's such slack in the economy. We're so far away from full employment that they can just print all of this extra money to help stimulate economic activity and it's not going to show up in inflation. What, what are your thoughts on that, Darren? Well, it's actually worse than that. Um, that would be kind of at least some sort of Keynesian argument, but, you know, even Keynesians like, um, or at least former Keynesians like Paul Krugman are critics of MMT. Yeah. Um, so the MMT is worse. You know, they're taking like, for instance, the, the Keynesian sort of, you know, the, the, you know, the kind of macro income expenditure model, you know, the C plus S plus T, you know, that. And then they're going like, you know, oh, look, you know, uh, government minus, government expenditure minus tax equals, you know, they they kind of do the algebra and they go, oh, look, you know, G minus T equals S minus I. Oh, you know, so, but, but, you know, they, they don't think about causality. They go, well, oh, government deficits create, you know, private savings, <laughs> you know, net private savings is actually the other way around, you know, that, you know, well, sorry, that obviously net private savings don't create government budget deficits, but they certainly help you to have one, you know, in, in terms of if you're not going to simply print money, obviously, um, if you can actually draw down some savings too out of, out of um, investment markets. And, you know, obviously this is all kind of mixed together because, you know, there's some real savings out there as well as just the kind of the printed money, if you like, um, so MMT is, is far worse than, you know, suggesting that all oh, things are slow and thus we need to use it. These people are, you know, pushing this thing as a kind of permanent model, um, or at least until CPI looks so scary that they get, you know, at least a revolt from markets or worse, a revolt from voters. Look, I think they're, they've aligned themselves with this view that we're in this period of secular stagnation. So, yes, possibly they are putting this no, forward. No, I'm suggesting that they're not talking about it. They're, they're just, some will use it as a just a side argument. But, no, they, they want this as a this is the way you run government, generally speaking. 
It's not, it's not a, oh, we're in a recession. We need to do something about it. It's like, we think government should run more things. Yeah. That's the best way for to, to do it is if we can't raise taxes, you know, because of what, you know, because of Congress gets in the way or, you know, politics, et cetera. Um, well, we'll just print it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort you know, we'll, we'll funnel that through a complex system and make it look like we're not just simply printing it, but that's essentially what they're doing. Oh, I, 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 yes, yes. Okay. So there's certainly a political aspect to it because this MMT theory is it's most, its prominent supporters are on the progressive side of US politics, such as uh, the US Congresswoman uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and and some other, and I suppose, or Bernie Sanders. I think it was one of Bernie yeah. Sanders' advisors, uh, Stephanie Kelton, who wrote that book on the deficit myth. So, yes, right. certainly it's uh, politically convenient. Right. So, it's people further to the left than Krugman. So, <laughs> mm. you know, that, that kind of context is kind of important. You know, at least Krugman, I'm guessing, at least tries to stay within some sort of bounds of a Keynesian framework, and, and he sees as MMT is outside that. Right, yes, yes. I mean, one of the concerns I've had about MMT is that by following this policy, you're actually going to – you'd actually undermine the, the phenomenon that you're relying on. I mean, there's no doubt that governments can get away with a lot because they do have control of – they can effectively control the money supply – but my view has always been if you push that too far, then no one's going to trust your currency, okay? So you could just completely uh, – what what's the what's the line that Keynes quotes from Abolish Lenin? The currency, yeah, debauch the currency. How do you pronounce it? Yeah, I think uh, – yes, yes. So he said that's the surest way to uh, to create political chaos. And, and, and that's just where I see this. Well, this guy. This, Lenin also said something similar, but in a way that he thought that was good. In other words, you're, you're, you're basically 90% of the way of getting a socialist system in place by this sort of process. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I guess. And, and Keynes, of course, would, uh, would, would obviously be uh, appalled by that. I mean, Keynes was about uh, – I think Keynes wanted to – socialized part of investment didn't he but he certainly wasn't a, a socialist he certainly wasn't a, he was a, a very uh he, he probably wanted to maintain the, the you know the existing system uh, that he benefited from a lot uh, but that's probably getting a bit a bit off topic uh, but he did make a lot of money i understand yes. on stock markets and stuff so but yeah i think i think you know it won't be too stretch too much of a stress to suggest Keynes you know, could have been characterized as a Fabian socialist. Yes. Which means a long march towards it. But, you know, that way he can stay rich and eat nice things and go to nice restaurants in the meantime. You know, whereas obviously Lenin wanted overnight revolution. Now, the, the big controversy about Keynes as an investor. Now, I saw a book that's come out. It was on the shelves at Dimmick. So I still have to read it. So maybe I shouldn't <laughs> criticize it without reading it. But it's about how Keynes was a genius as an investor. But from what I understand, there, there's this big controversy over the extent to which Keynes relied upon information he gained while working as a consultant to the HM Treasury, so the, <laughs> <laughs> to the UK Treasury. There's an argument yeah. that he actually used that information to make favourable stock trades, which... That's why he was such a genius, was he? <laughs> oh, apparently. Well, because he, well, he did it for the Cambridge... Uh, you know the trust of the college he was at at Cambridge uh, was it oh, King's right. College? So, and he probably you know 
I guess he probably – I think he made some of his own investments too. So uh, I think he probably saw it in service of the greater good. <laughs> <laughs> probably did. <laughs> anyway, well, I'll, I'll look more into that. It's a, it's a fascinating story. But it, it, it has the – it sounds plausible though. I mean, if you're in a prominent position like that and you're an advisor to the Treasury and you're – I mean, you're you're in contact with uh, with all the prominent people, even Churchill, and uh, certainly that that was a, a possibility. Okay. I, wonder if he, I wonder if you had to give a cut to his version of the big guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I, if you're, I, if you're I, listening, know what I'm talking yeah. about. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I don't think so. Uh, certainly not to Churchill. I think Churchill was was probably above above uh, criticism. He's one of the cleanest, I think he's one of the cleanest politicians we've ever seen. I mean, this is a point Boris Johnson made in his uh, book on the Churchill factor, that Churchill's whole career is as distinct from a lot of politicians. There wasn't a lot of scandal. Like there were some huge political stuff ups. Okay. He made some big errors. He got the big thing right in the end, but very little scandal. Not so much in World War One, but yeah, made up for it in World War Two. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's <laughs> back to the uh, inflation and money, Darren. We chatted before about gold, and so gold is seen as a hedge against inflation. Increasingly, crypto and Bitcoin have been seen as a hedge against inflation. But now, I mean, Bitcoin's just going all over the place, and there was a bit of a a crash recently because of some comments Elon Musk made on SNL. Do you have any thoughts on whether investing in gold or crypto, bearing in mind none of this is financial advice relevant to your individual circumstances? So I'm just asking you in general terms, what do you think or what do you think personally about gold and crypto without giving you investment advice? I think I would say, well, you know, I certainly, as I've always said, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm sort of like a very much an amateur with, you know, understanding cryptocurrency. You know, I sort of read a little bit about it. I keep a little bit of an eye on it. Um, you know, I'm not a gold expert, but I do know, you know, a fair bit more about gold than I do about um, Bitcoin. And, you know, nothing's changed. In fact, this has kind of solidified my view. So, like, uh, you know, it's basically not a substitute for gold. It, it's not, you know, it, it's it, digital currency is not like real physical gold. Real physical gold is very scarce no matter how much money you pour into trying to find the stuff, you just don't find a whole lot of it. Right. And, um, it's just, it's like, an, it's a, you know, it's, it's why it's ended up being, you know, prior to the fiat, fiat currency era, you know, why pretty much almost every culture on the planet chose it as money, you know, cause it does retain its value just because you can't flood it. You can't, the supply side just can't be flooded. You know, it's just once in a while, you know, obviously when the Spaniards came back from, in the Americas, okay, that sometimes happens in his history, but that's pretty rare. They, they paid for it. They got some inflation in Spain at the time, you know? Um, but, you know, then it settled back down. They can't keep it going. They couldn't go in and find another two continents to conquer. <laughs> that was it, you know, um, that, that people didn't know about. Um, so, look, yeah, gold is, is by far the best hedge, um, you know, sometimes you can actually make some money out of it, um, but that's usually in times of of monetary chaos. We are in one of those times of monetary chaos. I'm not suggesting go buy gold because it's going to go up for sure. So we don't know because 
you know, the supply side of that market is, is um, very set. Not much comes onto the supply. You know, all the gold that's there, you know, we're talking like 90 plus percent has been there for a long, 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 long time. Right. So, you know, so it's really the demand side, you know, like, and the demand side is, is driven by things like, you know, am I worried about the currency? Am I worried about other investments, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's the demand side and that can be a bit wild. So, you know, um, it, it doesn't go back. So it's always pretty safe in the sense of, you know, if you buy some gold, it's probably not going to crash on you. Right. But I can't guarantee it's going to skyrocket, you know, like it did a little bit last year. You remember there was the kind of that period yeah. where it was kind of rocketing, not skyrocketing like crypto was. Um, so, so crypto to me is kind of a more risky investment. Um, I appreciate the fact that, you know, many claim that Bitcoin was meant to copy gold, you know, the concept of gold and, and try to get around the fact that there was a lot of impediments to gold, either just because of the way the marketplace works, but also government impediments to gold as well. Um, uh, and also the fact, you know, look, government can influence, I should put another caveat with gold. I understand central banks control. And I wrote about this for the good sauce. So I actually quoted the exact statistics. So I can't remember, but it's, you know, something like 20%, right. You know, that um, central banks own of the, of the supply of gold. So, you know, obviously you can, they can influence the market with that sort of number. Um, It's not like 80%. So that's good. Uh, Although again, you know, that's comes with another caveat if we don't really know for sure how much the central banks have, particularly the federal reserve, which is the most mysterious one, you know, what's in Fort Knox, what's not in Fort Knox, well, Who isn't knows? it? Uh, isn't it in uh, Manhattan? I mean, have you you've seen Die Hard three, haven't you? Uh, remember Jeremy Irons related back to Captain America or something? But no, it's Die Hard three. Isn't oh, it? Die Hard three. Uh, <laughs> because remember Jeremy Irons' character? He he was uh, related to Hans Gruber, wasn't he? And in who was the villain in Die Hard one? And then Jeremy Irons' character they they robbed the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and. They st- try to steal all the gold in the vaults, like and and he says that this is the biggest collection of gold in the world. Fort Knox is for tourists. So anyway, <laughs> if you Possibly. haven't if you haven't seen Die Hard Three, could totally recommend no, it. I, I, I loved the first one, but that was that was yeah. I was never excited to watch any of the other ones. The first one was the best. Uh, yes, yeah, there's yeah. no Godfather oh. Part Two thing going on with Die Hard. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I think Godfather one and two were good. And then it's the third one that kind of gets panned a bit. Um, so, yeah, so apparently, so the central banks own, you know, according to some estimates, uh, it's more like 16, 17%. So, yeah. Yeah. The total, yeah. Stocks, total stocks, you know, so, you know, it's influential, but it's not, you know, they're not dominating the market as such, depending on your definition, of course. Um, so, yeah, look, you know, cryptocurrency, you know, it's an interesting thing, you know, always that, you know, I have high hopes that it might actually become a currency because it certainly isn't a currency when it costs 40000 or, you know, even though it's now to, down to 30000 or whatever per Bitcoin. That's not a currency, obviously. Um, and, you know, and gold obviously isn't functioning as a currency either at the moment. It's more, you know, as we talked about, kind of more a hedge investment Um you know, not to say, you know, look, gold certainly has the capacity to be a currency again, you know, if, if that, you know, certain things happen, of course, and, you know, there was a, a sensible transition back to it. Um, 
you know, whether crypto will actually be a currency, you know, obviously Elon Musk and others are kind of looking at it as maybe doing that, but it, it has. Well, I guess the problem with Bitcoin now is that like Elon Musk was saying, well, we'll accept it for Tesla. And then he said, oh, actually, we won't uh, like, because you just can't. I think that was the problem. You can't fix You'd be mad if you said, oh, well, we will sell this car for X Bitcoin and, uh, you know, we'll keep that price constant for the next six months or something or whatever, because you just wouldn't do that because it's so volatile. So you're just not going to get any prices set in Bitcoin, any firm prices, any contracts set in Bitcoin. You'd be absolutely crazy. And so therefore, you you probably won't see it transitioning to be a currency in, in my view. But one thing I'm wondering, Darren, is because I know that you're – you are a libertarian, and I know that Bitcoin is attractive to many, oh, I guess, libertarians or anarchists because they see this as something that is going to, this will survive the coming, uh, I don't know, demise of, of our current civilization where we've just got this rampant money printing. I know that there are a lot of those concerns out there. So could you see, could you see where they're coming from? I mean, I, I think they're probably a bit... I think they're overreacting. I, I can't see Bitcoin as the. I think there certainly are issues with all of the huge growth in money supply, and we could see future inflation. So we do have to be concerned about that. I, I'm less worried about breakdown of civilization. But do do you see people like that? Do you know people like that who are worried about that? Uh, yeah. Look, you know, I, I probably I'm a strange hybrid. I, I'm I'm kind of in between a conservative and a libertarian. You know, aspects of both. Um, so, you know, I, in some things I fit in one side and some things I fit on the other side, but yeah, I look, I know the libertarian world and, you know, certainly the anarcho capitalist world as well. Um, and yeah, I think that a lot of them had kind of unrealistic hopes about, you know, cryptocurrency and, you know, to extent it really would become a currency that could, you know, eventually replace the fiat currency we have, or at least be, you know, you know, at least be a, a sort of like practical alternative, at least. Um, it hasn't even become the practical alternative, really. Um, it's an investment vehicle, but it's a risky investment vehicle, you know, um, and that's fine, you know. Uh, not saying that could never happen, uh, but then, you know, probably, sadly, the thing that they would want the least is probably more likely. In other words, central banks will actually issue their own cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah, um, these digital currencies. It's that not they're... what libertarians, it's certainly yeah. not in our capitalist libertarians want. Um, and, and, you know, I'm as a conservative, you know, I, I share the concerns about central banks, you know, um, that hasn't changed, you know. Um, and I do worry about the breakdown of civilization. You know, I'm not saying it is going to break down to the point of, you know, like, um, you know, what happened to Rome, obviously, for instance, um, but it could, you know, I'm not of that sort of conservative camp and go, oh, this could never happen. Oh, we were run by the rule of law. After 2020, we're not run by the rule of law. That is quite clear. You know, um, you know, no Western society really has a strict rule of law. You know, um, you know, basically, officials and bureaucrats can largely do what they want, and courts will largely rubber stamp it, particularly if there's a crisis like a pandemic going on. Yes, yeah. Look. I've been I've certainly been surprised by the extent to which governments have gone beyond what we thought traditionally they could do. I know you can make arguments in the public interest for some of these measures, uh, but uh, look, I, I wasn't. I know that you were someone who was 
as soon as this all occur- was all occurring, you were you were sounding the alarm bells, uh, whereas I was probably a bit more, uh, a bit less worried about it. But yeah, certainly I'm I'm coming more to your point of view. So I think that's a that's a good point. We'll have to chat about that in another episode, uh, Darren. Well, it's, it's related because you know even as I point out in my in my you know all this kind of MMT, which you know two years ago would have been crazy. You know, like yes. that's got no plan. You know, it's back, it's on the table because of 2020, because of the lockdowns, because of, you know, all the other stuff that happened, you know, the, the, the BLM, Antifa, all this sort of stuff. Um, everything's on the table, sadly. Uh, so, you know, obviously it's not the focus of my article or our discussion, but culture and economics are not two completely separate things. Um, and civilization as a whole you know, is both of those things, if you like, and more. Um, and, you know, sort of there's governments who are playing with fire and, and institutions, central banks that are playing with fire. You know, Federal Reserve and the Reserve Bank are being completely irresponsible. Right. I mean, I guess you talked about the linkages with progressive politics before in the US. It's not just so-called progressives. It's it's actually, if you look at what's happening in Australia too, I mean, uh, you look at the huge budget deficits we're running and the large growth in money supply because the RBA here, the Reserve Bank, it's doing its own quantitative easing. I mean, we're sort of going that way too, which is uh, which has stunned many people in Australia. I mean, certainly some emergency measures were required, but uh, yeah, just what's being done now is is striking some of us at least as uh, as quite excessive. And uh, we have a uh, Nominally, a conservative government in Australia, or the Liberal Party and the National Party, although the Liberal Party here is supposed to be conservative, uh, have, looking at its budgetary policy, you, you just wouldn't recognise it. You wouldn't think that this was the party of John Howard and Peter Costello, which ran 10 budget surpluses. It's just No, 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 not at all. It's, it's very disappointing. It's disappointing on steroids in many ways. Like, I, I criticised, you know, um, the 2017 budget, you know, I had a close look at that at the time. Um, and, and, uh, SCOMO was treasurer then. And then I just thought it was just an absolute terrible budget. Of course, you know, I thought, oh, well, that's because, you know, Turnbull was the prime minister. So, you know, let's see how SCOMO goes. Obviously he's not, you know, the budget is, is Frydenberg technically, but obviously the prime minister and treasurer have to work hand to hand on this. Treasurer's not going to just do whatever they want, obviously. Um, just like obviously Costello and Howard work together, Keating and Hawk in a previous period. Um, yeah, things have, you know, um, that obviously have been changing certainly for like the past 10, 12 or so years. You know, GFC really, you know, because, you know, a lot of us, you know, I don't know about you, but I thought Keynesian economics was dead, you know, for the most part. Oh, it would have until 2008, 2009, yes, yes, yeah. yes. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in 2020, 2021 is, you know, like, you know, it's moved beyond Keynesian economics. It's, you know, as I said, it's this MMT philosophy, and it, and it ties up with you know the the philosophies of of um, you know it's not directly linked to you know things like uh, cultural Marxism and postmodernism, but they work quite nicely hand in hand. To be honest, there you know it's it's in many ways it's a kind of a new unholy trinity that we're seeing in the U.S. and I'm sure you can see it in Australia very soon. Um, if it's not already there, well, I know it's already there. These sort of forces are already there, um, but you know, under the kind of 
very small C conservative government. Maybe it's held back a little bit, but you know, not that much really. Um, you know, they, they, the liberal nationals have a you know have certainly a, a great track record over the past 12, 15 years of capitulating to the left. Um, so. Yeah. Well, I guess there's been a, a general shift in the in public attitudes in a leftward direction, and to an extent, the the party on the right has to has decided to shift with that for political reasons. I mean, that that's possibly what's happened. Yeah, that's the assertion, but as we all know, the polling can be out by like fifteen plus percent, so it's hard to say what's going on. Um, I don't think the public is really lurched way off to the left supporting critical race theory, the great reset, you know, MMT. I don't think so. I think, you know, if people really understood these things, um, the left have always operated in a fog. They don't, they don't sit and put their cards, you know, clearly on the table. Um, you know, for every Bernie or AOC, there's another 10 or so people behind the scenes who, who say, Oh, we're doing the exact opposite. You know, Oh, we're not doing this. You know, so, um, and that's common throughout the Western world. You know, the interesting thing about Australians always think there's such a chasm between what, you know, the U.S. culture and the Australian. No, there isn't. It's minimal. It's very minimal. You know, I've, I've lived and operated across the English-speaking world. I see the exact same phenomenon. Just, you know, you know, maybe one's leaping ahead a little bit over the other, but it's all, you know, it's the same sort of like um, political and, and worldview divide. Um, and then, it, you know, it, it, and it sets up exact same way in terms of big inner cities versus everybody else. You know, it's the same thing, you know, U.S., Australia, Canada, U.K. Well, there's certainly, yeah, there's certainly that big inner city versus regional divide in Australia, except on the issue and, of... And the burbs, too. You yeah. Know, the, the outer burbs tend to be more conservative, obviously, than the inner burbs. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, I, I think it's kind of inner city elites versus the rest for the most part. Well, why don't we return to this in a future conversation? Because of what I'd like to explore there is the big issue in Australia, uh, other than COVID, I mean, COVID is obviously a huge issue, but climate change, and then that is creating conflict between uh, view, uh, people in the inner city who would prefer uh, rapid decarbonisation of the economy versus people in some regions who are where the regions are highly dependent upon coal mining. So I think that would be a good topic uh, for the future. Before we wrap up, Darren, I'd just like to ask you about the 2017 budget. So was this when you were an advisor to Senator Malcolm Roberts, the senator here from Queensland? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. So you know, I said, you know, I said in that, you know, the, what, I forget, was it lock, the, lock, the lockdown or whatever yeah, they call uh, The lockup. Budget lockup. Yeah, I've administered one of those before. Yes. <laughs> I mean, 2020 is in my head, you know, lockdown. So, yeah, there's a lockup. Um, so, obviously, I prefer that lockup to the lockdowns. We only uh, lock you up. We I think we only locked you up for a few hours, didn't we? Uh, this is for the budget. You, the jour journos and advisors get the budget in yeah. advance of it being handed down in the parliament at 7.30 that night. And there was plenty of bad coffee and bad snacks, so, you know, it was okay. <laughs> oh, no. um, so, yeah, I did that analysis um, for the senator, and then, you know, I had that all in my head, and then, you know, later on just wrote it also for Liberty Works. Before you go, I'd like you to tell us about this interesting exchange that your senator had with 
the then Secretary to the Treasury, John Fraser, the Secretary to the Australian Treasury. And John Fraser was a former global chairman of UBS or something like that. Like, a, like he was a very prominent banker. And Tony Abbott invited him back to be Treasury Secretary in Australia. And yeah. your senator, and this, this relates to our topic of inflation and money, your senator had an interesting exchange with John Fraser. And I think this exchange was probably prompted by some work you had done for the senator, wasn't it? Could you tell us that story, please, Darren? Do, do you have the quote in front of you? Uh, I, I should have it somewhere. Yes, yes, yes. Because if you like, I can I can do Senator Roberts' part. You can be Secretary Fraser if you like. <laughs> okay, I'm not I'm sure. not sure I could. Uh, let's just see. Let's just see Fraser. Well, I'll just read it to you anyway. I won't, won't forget the voices. I, I can't do other people's voices anyway. So yeah, so Senator Roberts asked a question in, in budget estimates in May 2017, um, and he goes. Isn't it the case that such money supply inflation has been the key driver, at least on the demand side of the economy, of the rising consumer price index in recent decades? Then Secretary Fraser said, it is a hard one. I do not have an answer. I'm a traditionalist, so I see money base growing like this, and it worries me. But every time I carry on and talk about the inflationary impact, everybody laughs and says, you're showing your age, which I am. That is an on answer, but it is interesting. And I know that a lot of the people in treasuries around the world look at it and say the same thing. We do not have an answer. I'm not sure if that's really true. I think they know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, you know, to what extent Secretary Fraser was, you know, he sounded pretty, look, he sounded like he was kind of putting the, you know, I don't know him. So, you know, he sounded like he was being fairly you know, he seemed like he was being honest in what he was having to say. Um, Cause you know, he could have easily just dodged that question, you know, with a typical sort of treasury answer. Um, so, you know, it was kind of interesting, you know, that, you know, he's kind of was worried um, and he should be, <laughs> yes. you know, it's not good. I guess the thing that the one point that we, that we ought to cover before we wrap up, it's this point about how well, We've seen this, you know, quite strong growth in money supply. It's not necessarily shown up in CPI and consumer price index inflation yet, although you're arguing that the most recent inflation data in the US suggests that it's coming. But it has been shown up in it has shown up in asset prices, hasn't it? So it's shown up in house prices, it's shown up in stock prices. So they've been elevated by all of this money that, that's been available. Yeah, real estate. Depending on where it is, obviously, real estate's location, location, location. But yeah, you know, yeah, the stock market, real estate are just you know two traditional areas where you know you can get you know that kind of bubble um, forming to some extent. Um, then you know sometimes here and there, mining can be or other sort of really capital intensive industries. Obviously, you know because obviously low interest rates, you need a lot of money, etc. But yeah, real estate and stock markets are the classic places. You know, that's where it showed up in the 1920s when there was also a money supply-driven inflationary boom then as well. Because you know, the, you know, the Federal Reserve started in 1913. Obviously, there was World War One, inflated like you know, wounded soldiers, <laughs> wounded sa- sorry, drunken sailors. I think the term is not wounded soldiers. Sorry, spent like drunken sailors. Is that what you're saying? And, yeah, sorry, sorry. I'm mixing metaphors together there, like uh, Sir Joe Bielke Peterson or something. <laughs> 
but yeah, so look, and then, you know, obviously, the, I mean, look, the 1920s had some genuine real economic growth because, you know, the Coolidge administration did great stuff with, you know, low taxes and, and low regulations and all that sort of stuff and getting out of the way of business. But one thing they didn't do well, and, you know, I kind of forgive them a little bit because they, you know, it's the first time the U.S. ever had a central bank for any length of time, for any length of time, not the first time they've ever had them. They've had a two or three in the 19th century. Um, and so, you know, so look, they probably didn't know what was going on. They didn't fully understand the ramifications of what the Federal Reserve was doing. Uh, but of course, you know, what the Federal Reserve did in the 1920s is nothing compared to what they've been doing since, you know, 2008, et cetera. And, you know, what I argue, obviously, in my article, what they seem to be doing since January 20th, essentially, you know, to that date, you know, they've, they've started to take not just they, they've moved on from the QE philosophy to the MMT philosophy, I believe. Mm, and I think but that's what's different now, isn't it? Organizations to the contrary, you know, I think, you know, um, I think, you know, hopefully she, she's smart enough to go like, oh, you know, I'm concerned about this, but I work, you know, um, my boss is really, you know, the president this time. He wasn't technically the, the boss when she was the head of the, the Federal Reserve, even though she's appointed by the president. Um, you know, she obviously works for the president this time as secretary of treasury. Yeah. So what's, what's potentially different now from what we had in the, well, from the GFC in the years after the GFC where we had the quantitative easing. Now we're going to have, we've got potentially massive deficits, massive stimulus ongoing associated with strong growth in money supply. Arguably you could say this is a type of MMT and that therefore we could start to see inflation not just in these asset markets we could we could start to see it spilling over into consumer prices would that yeah, be fair well, to say yes you always see it spilling over in cpi when people look at cpi in teeny little segments mm. oh yeah you can go like oh you can explain it away and say look there's there's nothing going on here but it, it, it takes about two seconds to go look at what cpi looks like over the course of years and decades and you go whoa that's, that's a scary picture by itself. And CPI only, you know, uh, there's no exact estimate, but it's, it's about 40% of the economy. So there's another 60% of the economy that's not being captured by CPI. And if CPI looks scary in that 40%, and I argue that it does, I'm not talking about just the 4.2% last month. Look at it over the course of decades. It's not a, it's not a pretty picture since the, the mid-70s. And it's been worse obviously the past 10 years or so. Um, and then, yeah, obviously factor in, well, okay, that's only 40% of the economy. What about the rest of it? Okay, let's look at asset prices, wholesale prices, wages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what's also different is QE, at least, you know, in principle, and maybe in fact too, was aimed at stimulating the private sector. This one is really stimulating the public sector. Mm. And those associated with the public sector, like unions and activist groups, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. this money, well, well, how, how's this that Darren? I mean, like, you know, close to, you know, eventually it's flowing to places like, you know, like I said, activist groups and, and teacher public sector unions and all that sort of stuff. They're not trying to, if they want to stimulate the economy, get rid of the lockdowns. I mean, that'll stimulate the economy pretty quickly without you needing to throw taxpayers money at it. Um, right. So they're stimulating other stuff, okay. and they're stimulating welfare checks. 
Because, okay, you say, even if you're on the left, you think, well, we have to have these lockdowns. Okay, well, that still means people are unemployed. So, you know, this money is going into welfare. It's going into uh, unions. It's going into activist groups. It's going into, obviously, when it hits Wall Street, like it always does, it, it flows first into the best connected people in Wall Street. So that's big tech, you know, all that sort of stuff. Sporting leagues, you know, you know a lot of frivolous stuff, right? It's not, it's not hitting Main Street particularly quickly. Right. Okay. Gee. Yeah. Lots of, uh, lots of, lots of issues to think about, Darren, just on that. It's very very regressive, you know, so like, Mm. you know, when people, you know, um, you know, this sort of money, it doesn't just hit everybody equally. It doesn't, you know, lots of people win out of this. And, you know, if everybody was hurt a lot quickly, you know, such a policy one, you you move away from it very quickly. Yeah. Just on the increase in CPI since the 70s, look, there's no doubt that oh, we, ha- we had high inflation. Well, there was very high inflation in the 70s and the 80s, and then it, and then it got under control for a period, and, and it's been relatively low for the last, I don't know, 20 years, at least 20 years or so, and then now there's risk that it could, could increase. Uh, but I, I'm struggling to see how, why it that's matters. The main, that's, that's the mainstream narrative. Just look at, just look at the graph. Look at chart two, which is just basically U.S. CPI. And you can do the same for Australia. I've done it. Yeah. But- you, know, you look, it, it's not that narrative you just said actually isn't the case. But our wages and prices are, are our, our wages and incomes are higher in nominal terms as well as the as prices, as the price level is higher. So, um, well, look, yeah, you're right. You have to obviously compare ultimately, mm. you know, you have to look at that too and, and other factors as well. Um, but certainly just the straight up narrative that you, you laid down, which is, a, you know, just pretty standard narrative. It's not like, it's not like you invented it. It's just, you know, I've heard it you know, dozens of times and it just isn't true by looking at the CPI. I mean, um, you know, the CPI certainly in, you know, sort of the mid seventies, the late seventies had an uptick, uh, that, you know, certainly stood out, um, obviously given what preceded it. And then, you know, there was a little bit of a, of flattening off in the eighties, you know, under Volcker, for instance. Uh, but then there's just been kind of this steady climb that really is not good. And then it gets obviously from GFC onwards, there's a little bit more of a climb and, you know, and obviously we'll see what happens. Obviously, you know, we've only had the Biden administration in, in power for four months or whatever. Okay. Uh, but there's been, you know, you know, kind of a significant uptick, you know, on top of, the uptick from 2008, which was already an uptick on what was going on, you know, kind of in the nineties onwards. Uh, but yes, of course you have to ultimately compare it back to wages, profits, and, you know, various things yeah. to get a, to see whether, but, but the, the, the fact is, you know, um, this process, uh, you're just not going to have, you know, everybody's wages aren't going to all go up and at the same time. And, you know, our entrepreneurs are going to have profits that go up at the same time to match this inflation. There's, there's winners and losers. Which, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Under the previous system, you had less of that. Yeah. You, you know, the gold standard was pretty, very imperfect, you know, from sort of the 1930s through to 1971. You can see at least CPIs, you know, is fairly, it's kind of the monetarist view of the world, you know, kind of just a small increase, you know, here and there, you know, as time goes on. 
Um, that's not been the case, you know, so, you know, referring back to Friedman again, you know, it's a fantasy world that he thinks that central banks can be kept under control because they certainly have it um, very much, except for one period in the 80s under Volcker, under one guy. Yeah. So Friedman wanted a, a, an, an act of uh, Congress, didn't he, to force the Federal Reserve to grow the money supply at a constant rate per annum. Was that? Well, there was like a band, you know, yeah, yeah. kind of a, a band that, you know, that they could operate within. But what, which is much smaller than what we've been seeing, you know, since that time period. Yeah, but what central banks have been doing since the '90s, they've been targeting inflation. And originally, I mean, inflation was higher than the the target, and so they wanted to get inflation down to two percent in the US. So that the target of two percent in Australia, two to three percent. But at times in the last couple of decades, it's been below that. And there's been this idea that, oh, we've actually got to get inflation back up to, you know, we've got to push it back up toward the target, which is a really, it's a fascinating development. And well, 2 to 3% is, is still, it's irresponsible. I mean, that's, you know, when we talk about, you know, like how 2 and 3%, you know, economic growth can be good and accumulate in a good way like interest. Well, that's exactly what CPI does as well. But in the, in the negative sense, you know, um, when you start looking, like I said, you know, you have to, I mean, yes, you look at kind of recent CPI stats, but you always have to then kind of look at, okay, what does this look like over a longer time period? Um, you know, for instance, uh, you know, I looked at, you know, I've looked at this more recently, but, you know, like when I was working for Senator Roberts, you know, I would always sort of get these graphs sort of ready for him that he could use in various ways in parliament or interviews, whatnot. Um, and, you know, I was shocked too the first time I actually just kind of looked at um, Aussie CPI over a length of period, you know, rather than just like kind of the past year, the past few months or something like that, where these arguments, oh yeah, no, it doesn't seem like it's, you know, it seems like it's fairly under control. But then you look at it over a time period and you go, what? You know, like for instance, you know, um, in Australia, you can see, uh, particularly from the early 2000s onwards, it's like, what is going on? You know, CPI is growing at a pretty hefty pace and consistently. Well, we had a period of... uh... So that's not GFC. You know, sure, yeah, GFC, you know, then kind of adds a bit more to it. But, you know, there's, you know, the only period, if you look at Aussie CPI, it's actually a scarier picture than the US, to be honest. Um, Because CPI in Australia starts kind of going like, well, you know, it starts going crazy slightly earlier than it did in the U.S. So it's kind of the early 70s. It starts taking off rather than the mid-70s. Um, and then, you know, it keeps on doing that, really, until sort of the, sort of the, uh, the economic reforms of the, the mid-80s, uh, the, you know, the sort of Hawk-Keating sort of reforms through the national competition reforms in, in the 90s. And then, you know, CPAS kind of, you know, it's still growing, but it's, you know, you can see that it's kind of flattened out a little bit, at least, the growth. Um, but then, you know, um, after that, <laughs> it's, you know, from the 2000s, early 2000s onwards, it's looking a little bit like the 70s again. Oh, well, I guess in the, in the lead up to the GFC, we had the mining boom, Mark, one of the mining boom, and there was 
high wages growth and there was some inflation before that. I mean, this is just CPI. So, you know, yeah. it, obviously they interact, but, you know, there's obviously wages and asset prices are separate sort of like sort of um, measures. I mean, obviously they probably bleed into each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. I'm just talking purely CPI, you know, so, so you have a, so, you know, so the narrative that it's all okay. And there was, you know, there's these large periods of it was pretty good isn't actually correct. The only period where you can really say, like for instance, in Australia, where it's good, is actually, you know, I actually mentioned the, the mid 80s reforms. It's, it's more, they, you know, when they combine with the 90s reforms, then you got a kind of a nice, you know, flattening off in the 90s for Australia, but then it grows again. So, you know, you, you have a bad period, early 70s to the end of the 80s, and then early 2000s through to, you know, to today. Um, it's not good. You know, that, that's, you know, there's just no way that, you know, obviously, again, you have to qualify and look at what wages is doing, look at, you know, kind of wholesale prices, asset prices, the whole thing. Um, but, you know, it certainly, you know, falsifies the narrative. The standard narrative about CPI has been largely under control. No, it hasn't. Been. Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by under control. So what the mainstream economists would say and and what uh, i'd say the majority of uh, of economists would say and is that well if you've got inflation running at only two percent or two to three percent per annum then that is largely under control whereas you're arguing that you'd prefer to see essentially zero percent inflation no no i'm i'm I'm, i'll look i mean you say make a good point i've seen you know we're using qualitative words describe sort of quantitative concepts. So no, I'm, I'm talking even in the kind of the sort of the, the Friedmanite view of the world, right? You know, kind of one to 2% type of sort of uh, inflation growth, if you like, or CPI growth. I think, you know, Australia looks like they're outside those bounds from the early 2000s to today. And they look like they're outside those bounds from the early 70s through to, you know, the late 80s. Yeah, well, I guess it, de- it depends on the time period you're looking over. But my, uh, commentators would point to what's happened in the last few years in Australia and they'd say, well, uh, the RBA at times has, has not been meeting its inflation target and therefore that's what's justifying all of this quantitative easing. That It justified cutting the cash rate to, what is it now, 0.1% or something? Extraordinary. And also all of this quantitative easing. Um, yeah, I have very little time for most mainstream commentators anyway. You know, they don't seem to understand their subject or they purposely um, give you not quite the right impression of what's going on. Because well, like I said, it, it doesn't take a genius to quickly look up, you know, Australia's CPI or the US CPI over a longer period than the past two years or the past two months just to go, wait, that doesn't look quite right. It, it certainly tells you right away that the narrative and inflation looks like it's under control. It's just not. It's just not correct. The only thing you could argue is, oh, look, you know, from a Chicago sort of point of view, it looked like it was under control in the '90s. From an Austrian point of view, no, it still looks like that's not that great. Um, and I'd even you sort of, I'd even challenge a Keynesian to kind of look at that and go, yeah, things look pretty good, you know, before the '90s and after the '90s from a CPI perspective. I mean, maybe they might say that. That's, but you know, I'd at least challenge them. To to sort of like justify that that looks like acceptable levels of inflation. I mean, 
you start pumping that into the economy, it's, it's sticking. It's not like, oh, you know, things change. You, you know, you destroy wealth for the past five years. Now it's okay because we've, you know, printed a little less money. Well, you've certainly, uh, you've certainly eroded the value of money. If people are just holding, their, if they're just keeping their money in a bank account, then certainly any increases in prices is going to uh, erode that value if they're not getting if they're not being compensated through the interest rate through and, and people aren't earning, you know, nowadays you don't really get interest payments on your bank accounts or it's actually negligible. Uh, but if you're holding as, other assets such as you know, shares or real estate, then they will increase along with the price level. And what we've seen is that they've actually been increasing uh, more than, uh, more than CPI. Uh, so yeah, but who, 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 except for the one percenters, you know, you well, have that's to the use, problem. Because yeah. ultimately, you can't eat asset sort of like rises in your asset prices. Eventually, you have to turn them into money to do something. Mm. Uh, and and that's that's the thing. What's so insidious about inflation and why it's driven by the money supply? Yes, prices are driven by all sorts of stuff, not just the money supply, but any sustained sort of increase, etc., is the money supply. Why is that? Because Every single good and service, what's the, you're not trading it for another good and service as such. What are you trading for? Money. It's in every single transaction, including when you buy that asset or sell that asset. You know, you're still dealing with the currency. So it impacts, you know, virtually everybody all the time, you know, except for maybe the one percenters who, who yeah, they're, they just have so much money that, yeah, the devaluation of the little amount of currency that they use, you know, to buy caviar or whatever, it doesn't really affect them. Um, but it impacts, you know, everybody else, and businesses, consumers, uh, you know, it, it's just artificial. And, you know, ultimately, you know, anybody you, you can, you know, anytime you give someone a monopoly, it's usually abused. And mm-hmm. this is, you know, the central bank's, in, in a cartel arrangement with the big banks, like a legislative cartel arrangement, a legal one, it's completely legal, um, essentially have a monopoly over money and credit in, in every economy around the world. What, uh, look, yep, yep, true. And uh, I think what we're seeing now is that the central banks are running a big macroeconomic policy experiment. And over the next few years, we're going to see if that experiment has what the results are. And uh, yeah, there are good reasons to suspect that they uh, uh they may be undesirable so uh yeah uh darren we've had we've covered so oh, much they, yeah go ahead they have been running the um experiment for like 100 hmm. over 100 years actually um and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse with some periods some good periods here and there you know like i mentioned obviously volcker era or something like that but there's not many volcker eras to be honest um it's you know the good era is usually the exception not not the not the rule sadly yeah, look, I think the level of experimentation now is, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty extraordinary relative to uh, to what's happened in the past. Darren, Brady, Nelson, I think we better wrap up. We've covered so much. Every time I chat with you, I can think of, uh, I don't know, at least half a dozen other topics I want to cover or that we could, we could explore in more depth. But uh, I really enjoyed that. Was there anything else you wanted to say before we, we close? Oh, no, no, look, you know, yeah, I agree. Look, you know, as an economist, you know, and you're an economist as well, you know, and it, we're trained and to kind of see that there's lots of connections. There's first round effects, second round effects, third round. And then, you know, as I kind of study beyond just economics, you know, I start seeing 
the interconnections between economics and things that are supposedly not economics, you know what I mean? So, which is why I raised the various political issues like, you know, sort of great reset and critical race theory and all this sort of stuff. Cause you know, I'm not saying they heavily overlap, but there is definitely overlaps. That's fair enough. We can, uh, we can chat about that more in the future. Darren Brady Nelson, thanks so much again for your time. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Economics Explored podcast. If you're enjoying it, please tell your family and friends and please give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or on whatever platform you're listening on. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or to ask any questions, please email me at gene.tunny at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye.